podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. As we continue our study into the book of 2 Timothy, we continue in the second chapter of this book. The lesson today that we are looking at has the title of A Trustworthy Message, looking at the passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. This continues what we were studying just a week ago, and again are very important for our relationship with our Lord. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. with a short time of fellowship before that time. Over 140 people attend each Sunday, and we have many visitors who come to hear the Word. We invite you to visit our class if you are in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin this lesson, so let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy and chapter 2. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. One of the most important things to do in studying the scriptures is to understand the importance of context. Whenever you come to a difficult passage to understand, one that, that maybe is highly controversial, you have to look at the context, and you have to see what's going on. Now, let's talk for just a minute about the context of this book that we've been studying. Is this book written to unbelievers? The answer is no, it's not written to unbelievers. Yeah, it is written to one particular man, a pastor first, and then to share with his church, and then to share with other believers. Not written to, is it written about how to win unbelievers to the Lord? Or how to recognize unbelievers. No, it's written about spiritual perseverance. Being able to finish strong. It's not about questioning salvation. It's about that type of perseverance. Paul is seeking to persuade Timothy and us that spiritual perseverance is the key to pleasing God. You ever heard the phrase or the idiom, flash in the pan? He doesn't want Christians who are a flash in the pan. He wants Christians who are going to make through the marathon, which I guess is an appropriate example to use in Dallas today. But spiritual perseverance garnishes what for the believer? Rewards. Well, should we want rewards? Yes. You think God would tell us about them if he didn't want us to want them? Of course he did. And of course that's his plan. And we're going to see that today. There is going to be some controversy. There may be some things that we talk about today that some of you don't like what I'm going to say about them. But I'm sorry, because if I was to agree with you about them, we'd both be wrong. So let's start and read this passage. We're only going to make it through, you know, four verses today, maybe only three. We'll see. But it starts out in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11. But before we read it, let's pray. Father, as we come to you, 
help us to understand that you preserved these books for us so that we could come to an understanding of what pleases you. We could come to an understanding of your heart and what you expect us to know and understand so that we can use that understanding to share with others and to teach them what you want us all to know and what's important to you and what's not. I pray, Father, that you work in our hearts today and have the Holy Spirit teach us. And may there not be any distractions in the room, but instead may we all be pointed towards the doctrinal message that you have for us today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, listen to this passage. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, he starts this out with this statement. It is a trustworthy statement. I've heard some people say, scholars say, this is a statement that Paul uses frequently, and we need to come to understand it. You know, sometimes these people make statements, and it's just surprising to me that they don't look. Does Paul use this phrase, it's a trustworthy statement throughout his epistles? Answer, no, he does not. I've done a search. You know, he wrote one epistle that's a different from all the rest, which was to Philemon, writing about an escaped slave who was delivering the letter back to Philemon. Most all of his epistles were written to churches. If you look in Philemon or any of the, the epistles written to the churches, they don't contain this statement once. Not once. But he had three epistles that are called the pastoral epistles. He wrote two to Timothy and one to Titus. Now, in those statements, he says it four times. He uses this. It's a trustworthy statement or a reliable saying. If you look in your notes, you'll see the three places in 1 Timothy where it's spoken of, the place in Titus, and of course we're looking at where it is used today. Now, in two places, one here in 1 Timothy 15 and another later in 1 Timothy, we'll see it in just a second, notice what follows. It's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Now, you could almost say, that's redundant. Well, if it's a trustworthy statement, of course it's worthy of full acceptance. But Paul is stressing a point here. What follows, you need to know. You need to not just know it, you need to understand it. And you need to understand the effects that that statement, that truth has. So this is very important today as we study this. You can look on your own on those other places in 1 Timothy and in Titus, but I want you to understand, what does it mean, uh, trustworthy? This word here, trustworthy, is pistos, and it means trusty or faithful or someone who can be something, can be relied upon. You know, we have this concept of being able to take it to the bank. You ever heard that, that idiom, take it to you? Oh, you can take this to the bank. That means it's absolutely reliable. That's what this word trustworthy means. 
The word translated statement is logos, which means a message or a word of, of importance. You will see that this statement by Paul, it's a trustworthy statement, is very similar to you, something you heard from Jesus all the time. What would he say? Verily, verily, or some truly, truly. In other words, pay attention to this because this is important. And it, it, isn't it kind of like terms? I mean, they, they give you trustworthy statements, right? Yes. Like, oh, oh attorneys, yes. <laughs> they, they are always are trustworthy, right, Hayes? Unless they're against you. Isn't that right, Dewey? The ones that are against you, not too trustworthy. Now, now, don't be shaking your head. You're married to an attorney and you have a son who's an attorney. So, come on now. Now, to make sure we can understand, I'm going to have to teach you a little Greek grammar today. And this grammar is something that can be valuable to you to understand things. And even understanding difficult or controversial portions of the scripture. If you have your Bible here, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, this is an extraneous matter, but I'm going to get myself in trouble with it with some people. I've had people tell me, because of your position on this, Doug, I'm, I'm leaving the class. <laughs> well, and they did, and that's okay. Now, Let's talk about these first class, these class conditions in Greek. The first class condition means you assume that it is true, which is very common in the, in the New Testament. This is a statement that usually in English is translated if then or when then. If it's a first class statement, you know that the first part is true. If it's a second class statement, you know that the meaning is it's, you assume it's not true. Not true. Now, it's interesting as you look at these. In English, you can only tell by the context. But in Greek, you can tell by the grammar. And sometimes in the context, it's, it's uncertain. Now, sometimes you can be very certain. For example, a second-class condition in English, you know, if pigs could fly, Texas A&M will win the Southeast Conference football championship. <laughs> I mean, you know the, the concept, right? If you're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Well, see, there's clearly tongues of men and tongues of angel, and Paul spoke with them. This is a second-class condition. Not true. Oh, that helps us understand some things, doesn't it? So, I want you to go back, and we're going to look at a third-class condition, which is also used commonly in the Scripture, means it may be true, it may not. The, the, reader, the writer is not saying, the speaker is not saying for certain. You, you're going to have to figure it out on your own. The fourth one is rarely used in the New Testament. It's unlikely but possible. Now, the four... Class conditions we're going to talk about here in verses 11 through 13 are all first class conditions. What does that mean? It's presumed to be true, or it's going to be true. Now, with that as a background, let's look at these. The first statement. The first statement is, for if we died with him, we, also, we will also live 
with him. Now, it's interesting, although these four conditions are clearly meant to be read together, they're important in their meaning together, this is the only one where the condition important is in the past tense, it's in aorist, and that's basically a past tense in Greek. If we died, it's not if you're going to die, it's not if you're dying, it's in the past, you died. Now, what does it mean for if we died with him? Well, who's the him? Let's start that way. Jesus. Okay. When did he die? A long time ago. Maybe even, no, not quite 2,000. I was going to say maybe even a little more than that. If you think, two, if you think uh, 33 A.D. is the time, some people would say, no, it's 32 A.D., but we'll not get into that today. But the fact is, what is it saying? Did you die with Jesus? Obviously, it's not talking about physical death, is it? It's talking about something else. Can we say that we, first of all, we need to understand this word died, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a noun, pardon me, it's a verb, but it's a long verb. Suno panesco, and it means to die together. Not just to die, but to die together. This was the word that inspired Shakespeare to write Romeo and Juliet. And the concept here is, he's saying, dying together. You see, we are pictured as dying with Jesus on the cross. Now you say, wait a second. Really? Does that really, did that really happen? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 6, verse 5, starting through 8. For if I have become united with him in the likeness of his death. What is Paul saying? I'm become united with Jesus in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Do you see and understand this key concept? We have been crucified with Christ. We've died with him. When we died with him, our sins were paid for. Our sins died. No longer are we a slave to sin. It's the most important chain to ever be broken in the history of the world. Now, what happens to those who've died uh, to sin? They will live with Him. You look at this word live, it's suzadzo, and it means to live together with one. Remember how dying with, together? Now it's living together. So we need to come to understand that if the first half of this condition is fulfilled, and it was, it's considered to be true, that means we have a condition that we now live with Him. We have been baptized into Jesus' death so that we might live with Him both now and forever. Now that's going to be important. How long does the life that He gives us last? It's everlasting. Never to cease. Now, that's going to be important. Keep that in your mind. 
because it's going to help us understand some more of this verse. Consider for just a second, as support for this proposition, Galatians 2, 19 through 20, where it says, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you remember the living together? Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By faith. Now, look at Colossians 3, 3 and 4. Same thing. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Now, understand that the first part of this has already happened, and we are now in the second half. We are living with him. That's what we're supposed to. That could be disheartening for a little bit. How is that? What do you mean disheartening? That's wonderful. Well, it depends. What are you doing? Because he's there with you. You see, when we walk by faith and appropriate God's resources, we can now say no to sin. You say, wait a second, sin is too strong. No, it's not. Not with the power you've been given. You just won't use it. That's the problem. You see, in Romans 6, 11, it says, Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we understand he's talking to whom in these uh, couplets? Believers. Those who've died. Those who now are choosing are living with him. So let's look at the second one. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. What is he saying there to us and to Timothy? This word endure, hupomeneo, means to endure, persevere, bear bravely and calmly ill treatments. Bravely and calmly ill treatments. I've been known to bear some ill treatments before, but never bravely and calmly. <laughs> With great agitation and seeking to write. Yes, ma'am. Kay Arthur used to say it was to remain under the weight of the trial, to remain under, to be able to bear. The, the, so I, I think that's a good analogy, Julie, to bear up under that trial. Now, that's the word endure. Let's look at this word reign. Sumbasileo. Uh, and and sumbasileo means to reign together. Here these are another word. All of these you notice together with. He's going to reign together. Who are we going to reign together with? Jesus Christ. Who, what is he going to be? King. He's going to be king though. He's going to have a kingdom. How far is his kingdom going to extend geographically? The whole earth. Now, I want you to notice something here. The whole earth. If there were people living on other planets or beings living on other planets, wouldn't his reign need to extend to those planets too? But there's no need to because there are no other planets where somebody is living unless they're angelic beings. So I wanted you to understand that. I shouldn't have brought that up because no telling what questions are going to come. <laughs> now, what exactly does it mean to endure? It means to persevere on a spiritual level, which controls all our other levels. Spiritual level of your life could control, should control your physical level, 
your emotional level, your intellectual level. You ever heard somebody say, oh, I understand that spiritually, but I just can't accept it intellectually. What's going on with that person? They're messed up. Spiritual should be the controlling factor. Now, there are some people who want to tell you this word endurance, if we endure, well, they're talking about salvation. They're not talking about salvation. The man who's talking here and the one he's talking to originally, are they clearly saved? Absolutely. Is there anybody here who would think Apostle Paul is not saved? Does anyone here think Apostle Paul would appoint as pastor of the church of Ephesus somebody who's not saved? You know, this isn't the emergent church period time. This is, anyway, doesn't mean saved. Endurance does not involve salvation. Justification is not by works. If endurance did refer to salvation, what would it mean? It would mean salvation depends on what you do. What does the Bible say about that? There is no salvation by works alone or by works, period. How do you know that? Well, we all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's there in your notes for you. But look at Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Now, I want you to think about this a second. If your salvation depends on what you do, you performing good works, who, no, but if it does, this is a second-class condition I'm giving you right now. If it, if it does, what does that make you? It makes you your Savior. And you are not your Savior. There's only one Savior. So... But if we endure, what is the promise? We will reign with him. If you look at an interesting, people didn't understand this at the time, I don't think. Maybe some did. But this parable that Jesus gave us in Luke 19, it's the parable of the minas. I'm going to read you just a portion of it. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you're going to be in authority over ten cities. Ten cities you're in authority over. To the second came, saying, Your mind and master has made five minds. And he said to him also, You're going to be over five cities. Now, is that talking about reigning? If the master didn't have authority, had the authority to place someone over those cities, he has to have that authority or he, there aren't his cities to give. But he does. And he gives those, that authority, and he says, you're going to reign with me. Now, some people say, wait a second. One guy got ten, and one guy got five. That doesn't sound fair. Well, but it's just. And you see, I, you know, I go before judges all the time. And judges get it wrong a lot of the time. But you know what? They can't see into the attorney's hearts and the litigants' hearts what exactly happened? They just have to go on what they're told and what, what's presented to them. Is there anybody who could persuade God to do something he shouldn't do? No. Satan's tried, and Satan would be the best of anybody alive at persuading somebody. I mean, 
Think about this. He sold hell to a third of the angels, and they took it. I mean, my goodness. They were there seeing God, and they said, yeah, follow me. I can, I'm better than God. That's pretty persuasive in my mind. Look again in Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. For over these, the second death has no power. Second death meaning eternity in hell. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So what are we going to do? We're going to be priests and kings under the main king, Jesus. In Revelation 22, starting in verse 3, it says the same thing. For there is no longer any curse... And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. Now, I know Julie's against this, but there is a day I'm going to be tattooed. <laughs> I, have, I, can, I will tell you, I have no tattoos on me right now, but I'm going to have a name on my forehead, and that name will be Jesus Christ's name. Now, whether it's going to be Yahweh or Adonai, or Elohim, or some other variation, El Elyon, I'm not sure. But whatever it is, he can put that on me. And there will no longer be any night, and there will no longer have a need of a light for a lamp or a light of the sun, because the Lord will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. They here, meaning multiple. Consider again now, Second Corinthians, starting in verse 5. It's talking about an important judgment that's coming. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Why would you want to be pleasing to him? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what has been done, whether good or bad. What he has, what he has done whether good or bad. Now, who is going to be judged in that judgment? The church believers. Now you say, wait a second. I thought I was saved to escape judgment. Well, you were saved to escape judgment because in this judgment, there will be no judgment of sin. You see... There will be a future judgment of sin of other people, but not you, because your sin has already been judged. Where and when was your sin judged? On the cross. On the cross. Never again will you have to pay or answer for that sin as a, on a propositional or legal basis. But there's a judgment here of what you have done in your life. Now... What it will be is whether you are given rewards or not, or how much, how many rewards you will be given or not. Dawn. Clarification, this is church only and future, so the point out the will reign is future tense. Yes, this will be in the future, but I think that this judgment occurs immediately after the rapture. rapture yes. Right. This uh, rewards is church only. Not all believers of all time, church only. I think this is for the church only. That's my understanding. Okay, we're in agreement then. So this is the decision, and we got to understand this. Uh, some people think, well, 
are there going to be people disappointed? Let me tell you. Friday night, I went to my nephew's graduation. And you were there. Everybody who was sitting down there and then got to go up and get one of those fake diplomas. When I say that, you know, they're going to mail the real diploma. They just give them that thing to put it in once they get it. So there's, nothing, there's no diploma in there at that night. They don't have them ready. But the fact is that you, they go through. Everybody's excited. Why? Because they're all graduating. Now, some of them were wearing a white cord around them, and that means they graduated cum laude. And some of them had a silver cord around them, and that means uh, summa cum laude. And some of them had a gold cord around their necks. That's magna cum laude. Did some of them maybe wish, you know, I wish I had one of those cords who didn't have one. Maybe so, but they're all graduating. In this judgment, it's going to be the same way. We're all going to be excited that we're all going to be part of the bride of Christ, and that we're all going to be in heaven with him, and we're going to spend eternity with him, life everlasting. But there'll be some who will be rewarded more than others. And that's just the way it is. And God says, you know, that's the way I did. If you endure. Why is Paul telling him to endure? So that you can reign with him. Paul in effect said, I want you with me, Timothy. Don't give up. Don't quit. How is he going to do this? If they have lived in carnality their entire life after their justification. You know, it's, I would describe it this way. If you look in Revelation, and we probably will in the second chapter 19, it talks about the bride being adorned in garments of white, which is the righteousness of the church. There may be some people there who are indecently exposed. <laughs> if you see my, my meaning. That's, that, that's all they bought. And uh, look about how he does this. Because there's some things we think, oh, I did that. That was really good. Now, if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which has been built on its remains, he'll receive a reward. If the man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, for he himself will be saved, yet as through the fire. That is the description for the people who have chosen not to endure, to be carnal. And it's unfortunate. There's a few other passages I wanted you to see. Some people say, well, we shouldn't focus on these rewards. You know, we should just try to live pleasing. No. In Hebrews 11:6, it says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. Well, how do we know how to please him? For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He's a rewarder. Now, that passage I talked about in Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. So that's the graduation part. Now the special. 
And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So now we're going to get to the most difficult. If we deny him, the third statement, if we deny him, he also will deny us. What in the world does that mean? What are we to say about that? Well, I can tell you what a lot of people say. They ask the question, does this mean you can lose your salvation? Well, if you are a strict Armenian, which means you follow the teachings of a man named Jacob Arminus, a, a Dutch theologian who lived around 1560, they believe that one's salvation can be lost. That's what they believe. They believe that the saints can't persevere unless they be obedient. Here again, that creates a situation of dual saviors, does it not? I want you to think about this for just a second. They would also take John 15, 5 and 6, which is, uh, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and they throw some branches in the fire to support this view. The Bible consistently teaches that you cannot lose your salvation. In John 10, verses 27 to 30, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than I, than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That would, you would seem to think that makes it pretty clear. In Romans chapter 8, verse 38, Paul says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Notice he says things we've done in the past, things that are coming in the present, can't separate me. A created thing, does that mean the individual itself? Yeah, they're created. Nothing can separate us. But let's, let's look at one other thing that they seem to miss. What's the most well-known well verse in this Bible? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, so everlasting life is a life you can lose? How can you lose something that's everlasting? How can it ever stop? It can't. If you've died with Christ, it's everlasting. Now, that's the view of the Armenians. There's another group who competes with them called the Calvinists. And they have another view. Now, if you talk to a Calvinist, they will tell you, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. But really their view is the perseverance of the saints with works. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, what they will do is they will look at you and they will watch you. And if you persevere spiritually like Paul did, then it's clear that you're a Christian and you're saved and you'll never lose your salvation. But if you stop doing what you're supposed to do, ah, that changes things. Does it mean you lose your No, you didn't lose your salvation. You just never had it. You see, that's evidence that you weren't really saved to start with because you're doing that. They say, you say to them, no, wait a second. 
Who made you the judge to judge these people? Oh, I'm not a judge. Not at all. I'm just a fruit inspector. <laughs> Maybe fruit, period, is, is the better. But that's what they would say. Now, let me tell you, this brand of Calvinism is sweeping the evangelical church. And Reformed theology is growing and it's a menace. Does it have tentacles reaching into our church? Well, let's see. You will find that most of a large majority of the major pastors, speakers, apologists, uh, people who are involved in writing, authors and stuff uh, in, in the events, are going for this and reform theology. Let's take, I just thought of one example. And I did a little research. Now, Julie and I have a difference of opinion on something. Well, you better wait till you hear first. We have a difference of opinion as to what kind of books and stuff we should allow in our home. For example, I have a copy of the Koran. She would think that shouldn't be in there. I have Jesus Calling. Now, who's the author of Jesus Calling? I believe Satan. But the fact is, you know, I saw a movie when I was a kid. It had a strong effect on me. It was called Patton. And if you look at the portion of that movie where he's in North Africa, somebody talks to him. He said, well, I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to go to sleep. Oh, you. But he said, I'm going to read first. What do you read? Well, I keep two books by my bed. What are that? The King James Bible. I hate to admit that. The King James Bible and Rommel on tank warfare. He read the enemy. Why? So he could beat the enemy. We need to be able to beat the enemy. And to do that, we have to know what they think and what they're saying and what their plans are. Uh, we need to know what Islam wants to do to our country, don't we not? Do we need to recognize? Do we listen to George Bush? Oh, it's a religion of peace. That's a lie! i got to not get started on this. But what I want you to see here is we need to know. Well, if you're researching, you need to be able to speak and tell them what's wrong and know what they're doing. How do you know to vote? If you really don't know about Islam, how can you say, George, you're lying to me when you tell me it's a religion of peace? you got to be able to. Now, here's what I did. That's all a, a lengthy dissertation, which you probably spent too much time on, I went to John MacArthur's study Bible on this passage. John MacArthur, a Calvinist? Yes, a neo-Calvinist. Listen to what he says about this passage. Two things. Number one, those who so deny Christ give evidence that they never truly belong to him and face the fearful reality of one day being denied by him. Faithless, this refers to a lack of saving faith, not weak or struggling faith. He completely denies the meaning of these words. And, what is it? and he teaches differently. And, and that's wrong. And we need to recognize this. Now, let's, I want to talk about this. So that is, will Christ deny? Yes, he will deny you crowns. He will deny you positions of authority. He will deny you righteous robes because you didn't earn them. 
You didn't endure. What is God's, I mean, what is Paul trying to say to Timothy? You need to endure. Was Timothy not a Christian? Of course he was. But he's saying you have to endure so you can gain. Now notice, the first of these couplets, the first statement has to do with salvation and eternal living with Christ. The second one says, enduring with Christ so that you will reign. The third one is about denying him. Saying, no, I'm not doing this like Timothy wants to say, I'm giving up. This is too tough. I'm not going any longer. If you give up, what happens? Now, we need to understand this. The view we are expressing here is not the Armenian view, and it's not the Calvinistic view. It's not even necessarily the Baptist view. Think about our class. What is our middle name? Yes, this is not the believer's Calvinist class. Armenian class, Baptist class, any other class. This is the believer Bible class. We are biblicists here. We believe in the Bible. We want to find out what the Bible says, and that's the only authority. And if somebody else says something different, they're wrong. That's just as the plain and simple to it. They're wrong. The Bible is the only source of truth. If, if somebody tells me, Jesus Christ came to my house last night and he told me you can lose your salvation... They're a liar. And it wasn't Jesus Christ who came to their house. But it may have been someone impersonating him and his name's Lou. Once I'm born again, I am born again. And whatever I say, in fact, if you look, we need to answer this. This is an important question. I want you to look very quickly with me at the uh, fourth statement. We're going to come back to this when we... In answer to that question, it is key. You look at the next verse. What does it say in verse 13? If we are faithless. Now, it's important to understand. Faithless means a betrayal of trust or an unfaithfulness that comes upon. It means someone who had faith and then became faithless. You can't become faithless unless you had faith to start with. What does it say about him? And Bonnie, this would go to your question. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Is there anything that we can do to make Jesus not faithful to us? No. Nothing. Now, I want you to know something. I hadn't mentioned this yet. I wanted to save it for this last verse. Who's the pronoun in each of these statements? It's we, right? Who's we? But more specifically to start with, it's Paul and Timothy. Paul is saying, if I'm faithless, he remains faithful. Now, but you say, but wait, Paul doesn't do anything bad. I mean, my goodness, he's Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian that's ever lived, the greatest missionary that's ever lived. And so you look very quickly in Romans 7, and what does Paul say? Wretched man that I am, who will let me free from this body of sin and death? Does that sound like a man who never sinned? Who never does something that's faithless? Never betrays his master? Before we finish, uh, let's go to... We're going to talk about a few final thoughts I want you to share, to share with you. If denying Christ is not about losing our salvation, then how do we deny Christ as believers? Very simple. 
It is a refusal to follow him or his instructions. Now, Chris, do you sometimes sin because you just make a mistake? You don't realize what you were doing. In fact, you would say all the times you sin, it's like that as far as Kathy is, needs to be concerned. <laughs> but I think everybody in this room would agree that there are times when you, you're fixing to make a decision and you know the decision between right and wrong and you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and you say, no, I'm going to do it. That happens. That is denial. That is the type of denial he's talking about. I want you to consider the, the, how that, that happens. Do you remember a believer in the Old Testament we studied by the name of Jonah? Did God come to him and say, uh, I want you to be my missionary to Nineveh? Yes. And what did he say? No. Not even, not just no, you with me? In fact, he said, I'm going to make it impossible for you to send me to Nineveh. I'm running the opposite way. I'm going to get so far. The only way to go farther would be to, to go off the edge of the earth. But, you know, they believed in a flat earth then. They're not... I'm not going to talk about people who are flat earthers. But the fact is, he said no. He tried to do everything he could to prevent it. And finally, he was forced to say yes. The question is, did the Lord God remain faithful to Jonah? Yes. Both of my sons have been called to be missionaries. If either one of them were here right now, and I asked them when was the first time, they would tell you when the first time is, and what was your response? No. I'm going to be an architect. I'm not going to be a missionary. I'm going to be a sports journalist. I'm not going to be a missionary. But was God faithful? Yes, he was. And they finally turned, just like Jonah did. But you say, okay, that's kind of a, an important change in life. You know, you're talking about a major event. What about, is that all there is? No, let me tell you another way to deny him. And I hate this story, but God gave it to me, I believe, to be an example. And I have a hard time getting through it sometime. But I was recently... I was, at the time, recently married to Julie, and we went to a place for breakfast, and I loved the place. She doesn't like it as much, but we were having a really good breakfast at Hank's, and I was enjoying my time with her, and this woman and her son came in, and they sat down at the table next to us, and I didn't pay any attention to them, really, because I'm having a really good time, just being with my wife on a Saturday morning, but it was the time when the Mayan calendar had basically expired. People are like, well, you think it's the end of the earth? And that woman sat down, and she caught my eye, and she said, have you heard about this Mayan calendar? And Do you think it's really the end of time? And immediately the Holy Spirit said to me, Doug, share your faith with her and that boy. And I was so stupid. I said, no, it'll ruin my breakfast. Can you believe that? Denying Christ. I'm convinced two stars would be in a crown right here on my head in the thing if I would have just said yes. But that reward, he will, I'm sure, remind me of that. And there will be tears in my eyes when he does. But he also gave it to me and gave him an example. 
of what it means to deny him. When the Holy Spirit says to do this. If you're in a family gathering this time and they start talking and they say, you know, we, we've got to stop being old-fashioned the way we view sex. There's nothing wrong with having multiple partners. And, you know, it brings even to a marriage new initiatives and creativity and it allows for expansion and, and, and other people. No, I don't agree with that. We have to be monogamous after we get married. Now, before marriage, that's different. And, you know, you need to learn and experiment. But after marriage, you should be And you're there and you sit there and you say nothing. That's denying Christ. You got to say something. You got to speak up. That's wrong. Who knows better how to do it? The one who created it or the one he created? Come on. You got to be prepared to do that. And uh, you need to understand that. One other thing I wanted to mention before we finish, and I know I'm running late and I'm sorry. These four verses, we're going to finish the, the, four, the fourth one next time. Many scholars believed this was a song, the words to a song in the early Christian church that they would sing to each other to encourage each other, not to deny him, but to endure him because even if you're faithless, he's faithful. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this time we could have together. I thank you for loving us. But most of all, I thank you for your unconditional faith. What a wonderful gift that you have given to us. That we know you will always be faithful to us no matter what we do. That's certainly not something we deserve. We deserve the opposite. And yet, you as God gave us that promise. Thank you once again. But help us to endure and not deny you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs>